Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 27. Just hold your place there, but you're going to want to turn also to Matthew or John 18. I'm sorry. Matthew 27, John 18. We're going to make you work a little bit this morning. First service struggled. We had to get them awake. Had to get them moving. You ought to be ready to go by now. Um, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I'm going to ask Faith to come up and join me up here and also ask uh, Pastor Sam and, uh, and Amanda to uh, join me here on the stage this morning. Uh, this weekend, um, uh, we celebrate five years, five years that Pastor Sam has been with us full-time on our pastoral team. Amen. Um, he started out as a pastoral intern, served for about uh, 10 months, a little, a little under a year as one of our pastoral interns. We quickly realized this is a guy that we wanted our team. Um, you know, we look for some very specific qualities in guys that we want to be a part of our pastoral group. Number one, they got to love Jesus, and uh, we want to see it demonstrated in their life. And uh, if you're around Sam for any given amount of time, you know this man loves Christ. And he loves serving the Lord. And it just shows in everything he does. Secondly, we love to find men who have a humble servant heart. They just want to serve. They don't care what area. That was Pastor Sam. In fact, I think one of my earliest memories of this guy was in one of our other pastor's office. And he was packing up that guy's book because he was going over to Greenwood. That was Pastor Chris. He was getting ready to relocate over to Greenwood and become the campus pastor there. And there was Sam in his office packing his books. Now, I don't know if... Chris did something to get you to do that or what, but there Sam was, and, and really that exemplifies his heart. Whatever you ask this guy to do, he's just willing to do it. Jump in, and, and he doesn't just give you halfway. He only knows one way, and that's full bore, and, and, and so he's had a humble spirit, and he's a hard worker. Um, man, this guy is just, uh, this is not just, I think you guys know for us as pastors, this is not just an eight to five deal, you know. We, we live this stuff. This is our life. This is what we love. And it's not a labor, it's a joy. And we think about these things. And uh, I know Pastor Sam, his heart is just to serve the Lord. And, you know, he, he's served in several roles. Uh, we put him in different places. And, and uh, like a lot of our pastoral team, where they're at today is not where they were a year ago and might not be where they're a year from now. And uh, but Pastor Sam has of late found uh, a home within our children's ministry. And uh, if you've not been down there on, on Sunday mornings when those kids come for check-in and you see them come around a corner and see Pastor Sam and their eyes light up, boy, you're missing out. You need to just go watch it some Sunday. It's powerful. The kids love him because he loves Christ and he loves them. And Oh, man, it's just amazing um, what he's done within our children's ministry, how he's grown that ministry, developed that ministry, taken ministries we had and amplified them uh, to fit with our purpose, which is to, to reach, teach, and unleash. And, and so we're grateful for him. When he first got here, he was single, and we were praying for the brother. We wanted somebody to step up and take on this guy, and we didn't know who God would choose and... and uh, and along came Amanda, and we praise God. He does. Amen. Amen. Um, and I'll tell you, it, it, that's what's fun to me is to see a couple serving the Lord together. And uh, you see them in the children's ministry together. Uh, they both love the Lord. They both have a heart to serve. They're an incredible team. Church, we are so blessed uh, that God would lead Pastor Sam here. And just by a show of hands, how many of you have worked within our children's ministry in some way, shape, or form? You've worked in our children's ministry with Pastor Sam. 
when we got hands going up. I know in the venue service, a bunch of hands are probably going up as well right now because a lot of people have served with this guy. There's probably no ministry in the life of this church that involves more volunteers and more volunteer recruitment uh, than, than, than Pastor Sam's ministry. So if, you're not, if you don't have a place to serve, he'd love to talk to you because he's got plenty of work to do. But I'm telling you, this guy does a wonderful job with that, recruiting people and putting you into a place where you can be successful and be used by God. Pastor Sam, we can't express our gratitude enough for all you do, how you serve the Lord here. We're so grateful for you. And uh, what, what I wanted to do this morning, we have a gift for you and a, uh, Amanda, some flowers here and just a way to say thank you. But I want to I pray for them this morning. Uh, church family, would you just, just join me in praying for Sam and Amanda? Lord, we, we are so grateful. God, you're the God of all creation, and yet you're actively involved in each one of our individual lives. And uh, God, we're just grateful that you, you sought out Sam, and, and you drew him to yourself. You called him unto ministry, and in your sovereignty, in your grace, you, you led him to this church, Lenexa Baptist. And uh, Lord, we're grateful he obeyed that call, and he came here. And God, we thank you for his heart for ministry. We thank you that in your grace and sovereignty, you, you teamed him up with Amanda. And Lord, we thank you for the team they are in ministry. But God, as they serve you here, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them day by day. When things are going well on the tough days, God, that you would remind them that you have them right where you want them to be. And God, you would continue to show them your hand of grace and mercy and provision. Lord, I pray that we as a church, we would encourage them. We would uplift them in our prayers and we would surround them with our words of encouragement as they serve you faithfully. Lord, I ask that you protect their marriage. Lord, draw them close as they set their face towards Christ to serve him. Draw them close and protect them. God, we can't wait to see what you're going to do. These past five years, we're overwhelmed at how you've used Pastor Sam to to make us more effective at this work you've given to us. And God, we can't wait to see all you're going to do in the next 5 and 10 and 15 and further on down the road. And Lord, when it occurs, we'll give you the glory because you alone are worthy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church family, would you rejoice with Pastor Sam and Amanda? Love you, brother. We have, a, we have a wonderful staff here at Lenexa Baptist. I think you know that, um, but I want to encourage you to encourage them. Um, you don't probably get to see Pastor Sam much in here anyway. Some of you see him a lot, and uh, some of you wish you didn't see him as much. I don't know, but, but if you don't see him much, know he's faithfully serving, and if you get a chance, boy, all of our pastoral team, there's nothing like receiving a little note of encouragement to let us know that you're praying for us. It means a lot to us. So if you, you, you get those opportunities, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, real quickly as well, Operation Christmas Child. We had a goal of 3,200. We got over 3,300 boxes. Isn't that pretty good? Amen. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't forget, Pastor Jim mentioned, what's your gift for Christ? This is the Christmas season. What are you giving to Jesus? We give a lot of stuff to each other. We're swapping gifts all the time, aren't we? But what about Jesus? And it doesn't have to be financial. What are you giving to Christ? What, is you and your, what are you and your family praying about that you can give to Jesus this Christmas season? Um, you be thinking, you be th praying about that. Well, 
Matthew 27. We come to these, these uh, next three trials, and these are what is known as the, uh, as the civil trials of Jesus. And as we've been studying these passages of Scripture, we break it into pieces. Um, but really, the events are moving very quickly. So as I preach, I feel like, man, we've been, on the, we've been looking at these six hours for uh, two months, you know. But they occur in six hours. I mean, you've got, you've got the last meal of Jesus. He um, he is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested in the garden. Peter denies him. They lead him away. They try him three times. They beat him. And all of this, all these events occur within the span of about eight hours. I mean, these things are occurring very quickly. And the only moment of pause has really been a few hours that he spent in Caiaphas's dungeon. That's the only little moment of pause that he gets in all of this coming and going. And so as we come to these, these passages, and really the more I try uh, to study this and prepare it for a sermon, uh, the more it feels like I'm doing it disjustice or I'm not, I'm not really giving it its due. And so this morning, I want us just to study this. We're going to pull in the Gospel of John. We'll pull in a little bit of Luke. I'm only going to make you turn to John and, and Matthew. You'll have to take my word on Luke or go home and read it yourself. I didn't want you to turn that much in your Bible this morning, but, but I want you to see uh, this beautiful depiction of Christ's humility. Remember, this is the greatest descent ever known to man. This is as high as a person can be to God in all his glory, to as low as a person can possibly go, death and even death on a cross. Why? Because he loves you. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll just work our way through these texts. And at the end, we're going to reflect on a few of these characters. Father, we, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning. Lord, you have promised that your word does not return void. You have said that your word is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, I pray this morning with all of my heart that all of my words would fall by the way and your word, Lord, would go forth in power. And again, we would stand in awe of Christ who came and lived and died for us. Holy Spirit, please move in this time through the power of God's holy word for the glory of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, let's start in John 18. So if you've got John there, we'll, we'll get back to Matthew in just a moment. But John, in, in 27, verses 11 through 14, he's going to talk about the first trial before Pilate. And John goes into a lot greater detail. So I want us to see the fullness of the story. There's really a dilemma. Do we just stay in Matthew or do we look at the fullness of the story? I want you to see all of it. So we're going to look at these three trials, but it's going to require, each gospel writer brings in a little different aspect. It's going to require us to, to look at John and then back to Matthew. So this is this first trial before Pilate. Look at verse 28, John 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. They bring him to Pilate. You've got to understand a little bit about 
Pilate's background. Pilate is a, is a Spaniard. He has risen among uh, the Roman ranks, both militaristically and politically. He married strategically, and he's gained favor with Caesar. And now they've stationed him in this southern port, uh, southern part of Judea. Herod rules over the northern portion, um, Pilate over the southern portion. And this was probably not the assignment that Pilate wanted. This is not the place you wanted to go. You'd much, you, you know, you, it'd be like us being assigned to Iraq or Afghanistan. This was not the place you would want to be stationed at, but this is where Caesar sends Pilate. So here he finds himself in this southern portion of Judea. And when he arrives there, he uh, does what is called a show of force. And what he does is he takes the Roman standards and he puts them in the temple area. Now you can imagine how this angered the Jewish leadership and really all the Jewish people. You don't take the profane and the pagan and put it in the place of the holy and the sacred. And they got very mad. And they said to Pilate, you take those Roman standards down. He said, they're not going anywhere. And if you take them down, I'll kill you. And the Jewish people said, then you will have to kill all of us. Now, Pilate's in a dilemma. It's really not a good way to start your reign when you kill everybody under your rule. That's, that's not getting off on the right foot. So they backed him against the wall. And what Pilate is going to do is he's going to back down to the Jewish people. And what he does, by backing down to the Jewish people, he's going to lose face with Caesar. There was kind of an unofficial title called Friend of Caesar. It was kind of like the president's cabinet. These are his closest friends, his advisors. And by pulling down the Roman standards in the midst of Judea, he's going to lose favor with Caesar. And he knows now I cannot afford another misstep in my governance of these people. And the Jews know this. They know that they have backed him down once and they believe they can back him down again. And what they're going to do is they're going to bring Jesus to Pilate and they know they've already pronounced him innocent three times. The only thing they've been able to get him on is blasphemy. And Pilate doesn't care anything about blasphemy. Don't care if you claim to be God. That's no, that's no issue to me. But what they're banking on, they're banking on the fact that Pilate is a classic politician. Meaning that when it comes down to doing what is right and true and what is expedient to his career, he'll choose his career every time. So we're going to back him against the wall and we're going to put before him a choice of putting an innocent man on a cross to die or his career, and we're banking on the fact that he's going to choose his career. So they've got Pilate right where they want him. They bring him to Pilate, verse 29, put Jesus in the praetorium. They're not going to go in. Pilate comes out to meet them. It's an interesting picture here, too. There's a lot of going back and forth. Uh, they don't want to go in the praetorium. They don't want to defile themselves. It's amazing that they're killing the Son of God, but we don't want to go and we don't want to defile ourselves. Um, but there's this going back and forth. So Pilate went out to them. What accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, we don't have a charge. We just don't like the guy. Well, in verse 31, so Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And this is the state of, of, of Israel at this moment. They're a vassal state. They don't have the authority to, 
to crucify. If they had the authority, they would have done it themselves. But they know they can't without the permission of Pilate. How humiliating that the Jews, in order to carry out the justice that they want, they got to go ask permission of this pagan leader known as Pilate. But they know they have got no control. Now, what Pilate should have done is said, get out of here, go home. You got no case. It's not my deal. It's a religious deal. You go on home. But Luke's gospel tells us that at this moment, they sense that Pilate's saying, it's not my deal, go home. They say, but he claims to be a king. Now, when Pilate hears that word king, now he realizes, okay, now I got to deal with this. Claims to be God, no problem. Claims to be king, now we got an issue because that's a political issue. That's an issue of insurrection. So then what we see is in verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium. So he goes back to Jesus. I got to deal with this. I got to question him. And he summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? We've already talked about this, but Jesus wants to know the heart behind the question more than the question itself. Pilate, do you really want to know who I am? Do you, are you really seeking knowledge or are you just doing what somebody else puts you up to? Well, Pilate answered, verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests deliver you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He says, I am a king. But not a king as you say, king. I'm not a threat to Rome. And then he says this in verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I'm a king. For this reason I have been born. And for this reason I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus says, I'm a king. He says, first of all, I'm a human king. I've got a birth date. I was born. But then he says, not only am I a human king, but he says, I'm a pre-existent king because he says, I came into the world, meaning that my birthday wasn't the beginning of my existence. I am eternal. I am God. And he says that my subjects are those who listen to the truth. I came into the world, he says, to bear witness to the truth, meaning the truth about who God is, the truth about who man is, that we are sinners, the truth about the only means of salvation, which is to place our faith in Christ. And my people are those who hear the truth and listen, meaning they recognize that he is God and he's the only means of salvation and they trust and follow in him. Well, what is Pilate's response? Pilate said in verse 38, what's truth? And I don't think this is a legitimate question from Pilate. I think Pilate is saying, listen, I'm not a philosopher. You want to go talk to the philosophers, go talk to them. I'm a politician. I'm a military man. I'm just here to put down civil disobedience. So I'm not into these deep discussions about truth. You've got no interest in spiritual things. And when he had said this, verse 38, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. This is the, the fourth time that Christ has been pronounced innocent. Now, he says he's innocent. What Luke 23 tells us is that when Pilate says he's innocent, they say, but he's stirring up trouble all the way into Galilee. 
And when Pilate hears the word Galilee, what does he realize? Not my jurisdiction. He's not, this is not even my, I don't even know why I'm messing with this guy. This is a northern Judea issue. This is a Herod issue. I shouldn't even be dealing with this. And at this point, him and Herod aren't friends. They're going to become friends at the end of this because they both dislike Christ. They don't want to deal, neither one of them don't want to deal with Jesus. But right here, they're enemies. And he says, well, let's just send him on down the road to Herod. Let Herod deal with this guy. So he sends Jesus off to Herod. And you remember Luke 23, you'll have to go home and read it today. Luke's the only gospel that records it. He goes to Herod. Herod's been looking forward to seeing him, not because he wants to know the truth, not because he's trying to seek knowledge about who Jesus really is, but because he's heard about his great claims, what he's done, and he wants a few miracles performed in his presence. He wants to have a little private showing from Jesus of all that he can do. And you'll remember when people are playing games with God, what does God answer? Nothing. And Jesus answers Herod, nothing. Jesus will not play Herod's games. But Herod knows I got nothing on him either. Maybe a little strange, but he's not harmful. He's innocent. So Herod sends him back to Pilate, and you can imagine the look on Pilate's face. Here he comes again. I can't get rid of this guy. And then we turn back to Matthew. So now turn back to Matthew. What we've just seen in John 18, 28 through 32, that occurs in 11 through 14. John just expands on it. It says in verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Pilate has never seen anybody like Jesus. Pilate is used to men cowering in his presence. He has all the authority of Rome behind him. Isn't this amazing? That all the authority of Rome is going to be brought to its knees, not on the basis of some great insurrection or invasion of an, of an army, but all the power of Rome is going to be brought to its knees by the silence of a Jewish carpenter. That is called divine power. So he's unnerved by this guy. But he gets an idea. I remember that at the, the feast, at the Passover feast, I can release somebody. And so he puts a proposal for them. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So enter Barabbas. Barabbas, his name literally means son of the father. Isn't this amazing? You've got the son of of God and the Son of the Father. Which will you choose? The Son of Man, the, 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 a child of Adam, a guilty man, or the Son of God? Here it is. Barabbas, the Son of the Father, most believe that he was the son of a priest. He was a preacher's kid, preacher's boy. And uh, he led an insurrection against Rome. He didn't like the Romans. Most Jews probably really liked Barabbas. He was kind of a, a Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. But he's guilty, make no mistake about it. He knows it, everybody else knows it. He's been killing people, trying to overthrow Rome. So what Pilate's going to do, he's forcing their hand. Do you see what he's doing? You want somebody for sedition? If that's what you're looking for, if you're really concerned about somebody trying to overthrow Rome, well, I got a really good one right here. 
And he's known, everybody knows it. Everybody knows he's killed somebody. He's notorious. And what Pilate's going to do is he's going to force their hand to show that they don't really care anything about sedition. They just don't like Jesus. And so look at what it says. Verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who's called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So here's what I think happened. Uh, Most would agree that Pilate had been given a heads up that we're going to bring a man named Jesus to you the day before the Jewish leadership set this all up. They got to work it in a very short amount of time. So the night previous, they had told Pilate, be aware, early morning, we're bringing a guy, we want you to try him. And so Pilate's probably in his house that evening, sitting there with his wife. She's wondering, why aren't you sleeping? And Pilate says, because I'm about to try this guy named Jesus, and I don't know what to do with him. She goes to sleep. He gets up that early that morning. He may not even have slept. And she has a dream. Now, history tells us that Pilate's wife was not a good woman. This, this was an evil person. And yet she will have a dream. We don't know the contents of that dream, but we know she comes out of it scared to death of Jesus, and she declares him to be righteous. And she sins. So here's Pilate in the midst of all these meetings, wondering how in the world is he going to get out of this deal, and all of a sudden he gets a note from his wife. Never a good thing when you're in a meeting you get a note from your wife. So he gets this note. He opens it up. You can imagine the moment. He opens this note, and his wife is telling him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Now, he's already been amazed. He's probably already been unnerved. And now, you don't think he was a little unnerved about Jesus? He wants to do everything he can to push Jesus off on somebody else. How do I get out of this deal? Well, look at verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said to him, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And they all said, crucify him. This is amazing. I think Pilate's pulling out his hair thinking, how in the world do we get to this place? What is going on here? Verse 23, and he said, what evil has this man done? But they kept on shouting all the more saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. It's a a Jewish custom. When a judge couldn't come to a ruling over a certain circumstance, he would wash his hands. And now Pilate, a pagan, takes a Jewish custom in front of these people. And they knew what it meant. He's saying to them, listen, this is on you. Now it does not absolve him from his guilt in this situation. He's just as much guilty. But what he's saying is, to the Jewish people, on you. And look at their response. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. I want you to turn with me to John 19. In John 19, we see this final trial before Pilate. Pilate, he's tried to send Jesus to Herod. That didn't work. 
He's tried to send him to, uh, to give him Barabbas. That didn't work. And I think his thought now is, I'm going to have him scourged. And uh, a scourging, we're kind of left to history to figure out what it is. And it's hard to depict, although if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you've probably got a pretty de- good depiction of what occurs here. They took his hands and they would take his feet and they would have bound them around a pole and they would have two men on either side of him called lictors and they would have taken a whip with a handle about this long and a cat of nine tails and in those leather straps they would have put rocks and glass and one would strike and then the other would strike and as they hit that the rocks and then the, the, um, the, the shards of glass would embed into the skin and pull it back and More often than not, a man wouldn't survive a scourging. There's a good chance by the time that they're done with Jesus, his ribs are exposed. And I believe what Pilate is doing here is an attempt to tell these people he is going to break Jesus down until he is a shell of a man and he's going to bring them out to him and say, he's no threat to anybody. I think Pilate is hoping that if I can show that he's just a man that you've got nothing to be scared of. Maybe they'll let this issue go. So he has Jesus scourged, and we pick up in John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put on his head and and put a purple robe on him. Can you imagine your back exposed, being a a robe slapped on it? Verse 3, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. They're mocking his authority. They're mocking his rule. And to give him slaps in the face. I've often wondered as I read and study this. The angels in heaven. They're the hosts of heaven. And their job is to serve Christ. And can you imagine. The hostility that those angels felt. God you say the word. And it's over. And God says you got to let it go. He's got to bear the weight and drink the cup. So here he is, broken down and beaten. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Here he is. Perfect man. I think that Pilate's saying... See, he's just a man. He's nothing. He can barely stand. He's not a threat to anybody. But what do we know? He's perfect man. And this is what the world has done with him. What did John say? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Verse 6, so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said, take him to yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And now that word son of God, oh, whoa. Pilate hears that, and he knows there's stories of Zeus and all these other things, these deities coming back as men. And now he's really frightened. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorian again and said to Jesus, he's, he's trying to get anything with Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, help me out here. I don't want it. I bet Pilate, if you were to ask him, he would say, it's almost as if he intends to die. 
which is what he intends to do. He came and said, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you'd have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he delivered to me to you has the greater sin. We're going to talk more about Christ in just a minute, but Jesus is depicting here a picture of how you and I endure trials. We just keep entrusting ourselves to God, don't we? Listen, I'm not saying there's not a time to defend yourself. But if you'll notice here, Jesus, he is facing sure and certain death and he doesn't even flinch. And it unnerves Pilate. You know, you read about the Christians in Asia and some of the things they're enduring. I was reading stories this past week. These guys are told, you either stop preaching or we'll put you in jail. You know what their response is? Well, we'll just preach in jail. You preach in jail, we'll kill you. Well, then we just get to go be with Jesus. And they don't know what to do with these folks. And here is Christ giving us an example that when you're mistreated by evil men, you know what we do? Even Peter, what did Jesus say to Peter? Satan has asked to sift you. Satan had to ask permission to Jesus before he could do anything to Peter. And what do we do? We live above reproach. That is what Paul said to Timothy. I'm getting off script here. But Timothy, you know what he says to Timothy? He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made the good confession before Pilate. You keep the commandment without reproach or stain. You know what he's saying to to Timothy? You don't back down. You just keep trusting God just like Jesus did. And that's what we do. Well, verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Now they throw the trump card. They know, here it is. We're going to put his career on the line. You do this. It's over for you, Pilate. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the the day of preparation for Passover. It's about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And it is a sad place for the nation at this moment. I want us to very quickly reflect on three individuals. First of all, Pilate. You can't help but read this story and you see that Pilate, in every way, he does not want to have to deal with Jesus. He he doesn't want to know if Jesus is God or not. He just wants him out of his presence so that he doesn't have to deal with him. But no matter how hard he tries, he cannot hide from Christ. No matter how much he pushes him away, this bad penny just keeps showing up in his presence because at some point, Pilate is going to have to come to a conclusion on who Jesus is. And listen to me, every one of us in this room is in the same predicament. At some point or another, you have to come to a conclusion on who is Christ. 
Why did he come and does it even matter? But you better decide. You ha- There's no neutrality. That's what most people want. You start talking about Jesus, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. They just don't want to mess with it. Most people don't want to deal with it. They don't even want to think about it. But listen to me, you better deal with it now or you're going to deal with him sometime, but you're going to stand before Christ. Right here, Jesus is standing in the hall of Pilate waiting for Pilate's verdict. But one day, Pilate's going to stand in the hall of Jesus and Jesus is going to make his righteous verdict. And all of us will be in the same place at some point or another. You can deal with them now. Or you can deal with them then. But sooner or later, you got to decide. Who is Jesus to me? Secondly, consider Barabbas. What a powerful picture of Barabbas. Barabbas wakes up this morning. He knows he's going to die. And he's not apologizing for it. He's guilty. He's killed people. He thinks what he's doing is right. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm going to die. He's got no hope. No amount of money. No amount of politicking. All those things. Persuasive words. It's all out the door now. He fully expects by the end of the day, he's going to be hanging on a cross and he's going to die a cruel and horrible death. Because that's what he deserves. And yet a little later that evening, He's going to lay his head on a pillow as a completely innocent and free man. And the only explanation is that Jesus died in his place. And if that's not a picture of those of us who knew Christ, nothing is. Because all of us just woke up screaming in a hospital somewhere or in some room. But you were born. And by nature, we were children of wrath. We were sinners. And we were just floating down a stream called death, led by Satan to sure and eternal destruction in hell. And that's what we deserved. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. At some point or another, God intervened. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we were freed from the power of sin. We were freed from the penalty of sin. We were declared just and righteous in the sight of God, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We were freed from the power of sin. Now we had the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Freed from the presence of sin eternally one day when we're in heaven forever. But, But you and I who were guilty and condemned and without hope were freed. And the only explanation is because Jesus died in our place. And at some point or another, we trusted in him as our only hope of salvation. What a picture of us that know Jesus. But finally, consider Jesus. You know, all of Scripture is a revelation of Christ. All the Bible is about Jesus. Old Testament prophesies him, predicts his coming. The Gospels. What do we see? The Gospels, Jesus is presented. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. In Revelation, Jesus returns. But the Bible is all about Jesus. And right here, what Matthew is showing us is here is the perfect lamb of God who dies in our place. Because right here, Jesus doesn't look much like a king, does he? And all, everybody in this narrative, they're all proclaiming their verdict and their proudness. He's guilty. He deserves to die. Crucify him. Pilate said it. The crowd said it. The Jewish leadership said it. The world condemned him. But what do we know? Three days later, As the old saying goes, it's only Friday, but Sunday's a coming. Man can condemn him, but God's going to raise him. 
Man says he's a criminal and he's guilty. God says he's my son and he's declared with power to be the son of God through the resurrection from the dead. See, here's the deal. You're going to have to make your verdict today. But quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what you say because God's already declared he's my king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the blessed one, the only sovereign who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. He's king. And what Matthew is showing us is he's the substitute. He's dying a substitutionary death as the only means of our salvation. This is our only hope. This is all we, the only hope we have is that there is a man who is God and came and died in our place and did what we couldn't and he rose on the third day and he conquered death. This man, Jesus, is our only hope. I share with the first service I, article this week, Google, they're producing all this AI. You know what? It, it, it's a fascinating article. They're trying to fix humanity. That's what they're trying to do. They're creating all, they're talking about these, they're going to put sensors in your trash can that tell you, oh, don't put that in there. You've got to put it in the other trash can because that's plastic and it can't go there. And it's crazy, all this stuff. And so it's not all bad. If they come up with technology that keeps you from falling asleep at the wheel, praise God, amen, you know. But the premise is, what is the premise? The world's broken and we got to fix it. We got to fix these individuals who don't know what to do. And they're right, we are broken. But the problem is all the technology in the world can't fix you. Technology can't fix your selfishness. Science can't heal you of your brokenness. Only Jesus. And Matthew is saying, this is it. He's the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's your only hope. C.S. Lewis, his conversion experience, he has a conversion experience. He had a really, his, his, um, his mother died when he was really little. His father put him, sent him away to boarding school. His headmaster turned out to be insane. Literally, they pronounced her insane. He had a bad childhood. And he just rejected all things about God at that point. He said, I'm not going to have anything to do with God. Nothing to do with God. And he said his conversion, he said, I was the most reluctant believer. And he comes to faith in Christ. But after faith in Christ, he had this moment. He was, in Ox- he was going to Oxford to school. And he gets out of Oxford on, at a train station. And he's, he's loaded down with all this luggage and this baggage. And kind of in the confusion of the baggage, he just takes off walking. And he's walking to what he thinks is Oxford. But he looks around. He's like, yeah, this, these buildings are very plain and drab. Nothing, nothing special about this place. In fact, it's, it's kind of disappointing and discouraging. It's only when he reaches the edge of this city that he realizes he's been walking in the wrong direction. And he said he turned around. And when he turned around, he saw all the, to- the beautiful towers and the spires of Oxford. And he said, really, that's an allegory for my life. That all my life I'd been walking in the wrong direction. And life seemed drab, and it seemed like it had no hope, and it had no real joy. Only pain, only hurt. But then I turned and I looked at Jesus, and I was overwhelmed. 
of what he had done for me. We sing that hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Second verse, he took my sin and my sorrows and he made them his very own. And he bore my burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love towards us that was demonstrated in your son Jesus who came and lived and died for us. If there's any person in this room that doesn't know your love, God, I pray this morning that they would look to Jesus. Your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. I pray that they'd be so overwhelmed by the love of Christ demonstrated in the giving of his life that they couldn't help but run to you and know your salvation and your freedom. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would stand once again amazed in the presence of Jesus. As we see all that he endured and we're reminded that he bore our sin, he bore our shame, he bore our guilt. He had no defense because we have no defense. We are guilty. He died in our place and I pray in light of what he's done. This morning we would commit ourselves to living for him. Not in an effort to repay him because we never could but just out of a deep heart of gratitude for all he's done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.